0: You'll see in just a a few moments how a couple of the characters that were intimately related, intimately involved with Jesus, ran the numbers in terms of their relationship with him. Um, I have this image up here, because has anyone ever heard of the game Three Card Monty? Three Card Monty, okay. So Three Card Monty was this, this, um, what they call a confidence game, which we now know as a con game, uh, that started in the 1500s, and uh, basically it goes like this. A person will set up... A, a table, uh, usually a cardboard box, something that can be easily removed and, and ran off with, and they'll put three cards out on the table, okay? And they'll put them face down. And they'll have what's called a mark. So they'll do this in a public space. They'll be the dealer. They'll be a shill, one or two shills. These are people that are in cahoots with the dealer, but they don't let on. So they look like they look like they're just people standing by. And then there's the mark. And the mark is like one of us as we walk by, and we go, oh, what's that all about? I became intimately uh, um, aware of this game when I was about 20 uh, in the streets of New York. Uh, I was on a little road trip with a couple buddies of mine, and I remember uh, we had been working in Columbia, Missouri, and we'd made a bunch of money waiting tables during college, and so we took that money and we said, we're going to New York City. Um, so on the train there, I took on the role of being more of the worldly guy and telling them, you know, guys, we just need to be really careful. You know, people in New York, they're, you know, they, you know they're, they're different than, than us and they might, you know, try to run some game on us. So I just want you to be careful. We're going to put our money in our sock. Okay. I, t- I had my buddies, uh, Brett and Ian, and we all put our money in our sock because we didn't want it in our pocket. And we just thought this was going to be a really good thing to do. I had a I, I was very, you know, kind of paternalistic about this. All right. We get off the train. We get to the streets of Manhattan. We're walking through the streets of Manhattan. There's a guy with a cardboard box, three cards, flipping them over, and we're walking by, and I kind of catch my eye, and I go, huh, what's this? Well, I'm watching this one guy keeps getting the wrong card. All right, he keeps choosing the wrong card. And I'm sitting there going, I, see what car- I can see what's the right card. I mean, I could, I could win this game. I mean, this is easy, right? So I reach into my sock, I pull out my money, I walk up, and before you know of course the guy that's losing is a shill, he's involved with the dealer. It's a whole game. Everybody there except me and my two buddies knew what was going on. So before you know it, I'm, I'm putting down my money and I'm 20 years old and I'm laying out 20s like there's no tomorrow, and, I'm, and I keep getting the right one and he's, he's putting the money together for me let me hold it for you. I'll put all your money together. And then at one point, I choose what I know to be the right one. And whoops, he drops a card, leans over the table, shuffles them around, leans back up, flips it over. Guess what? It's not the right card, right? And he goes, Oh, I'm sorry. And he takes all my money. And I go, Hold on. And I, I turn around. Next thing you know, everybody's gone. The cardboard table's gone. The cards are gone. The shills are gone. The dealer's gone. Everybody's gone. And I'm standing there with no money, and my two buddies sitting there going like this. Nice. Nice, Rome. Really nice. (laughs) The thing is, these con games work on the premise, on our basic, basic self-interest, our basic instinct of we want to get more for less. That's how they work. Every con game works the same way. We want to get a lot without giving anything, all right? So we're running the numbers we're trying to figure out how we can accumulate the most with the least amount of output. Um, we do this not only with money. Sometimes we do it in relationships. We think we run the numbers on a relationship. What am I going to get out of this? If I start to engage with this person, what am, what is it in it for me? Um, in, in Los Angeles, this is the, this is known as the, I got a guy you should meet sort of mentality. And the way that works is your cachet, your sort of prestige, is contingent upon your ability to introduce someone of importance to someone else so if you meet someone you say hey i got a guy you should meet he can really help you out and this is how we sort of exchange um, power we're running the numbers on our relationships and we tend to do this uh, throughout life this approach is sometimes helpful in life uh, in parts of life it can make us highly efficient it can make us highly productive. It may even lead to material gain. But when we try to run the numbers on our relationship with God, everything gets turned upside down. Because the kingdom of God, as we have read throughout the book of Mark, is sort of a, a, a sort of a reversal of the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of God, brokenness leads to strength. Humility leads to honor. Generosity leads to abundance. Sacrifice leads to liberty service leads to greatness In the kingdom of God. Everything is different The story we're about to go through here highlights two characters Both of whom are running the numbers on jesus One of them is running the numbers on jesus to see what he can get out of his relationship with jesus The other is running the numbers on jesus to see how much she can pour out On to jesus how much she can give to jesus and it's a fascinating uh, Comparison between these two people. So let's just jump right in mark chapter 14 And we're going to go through verses 1 through 11 It was now two days before the passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes Were seeking how to arrest jesus by stealth and kill him We know that throughout the book of Mark, they've been trying to set this up for they said to themselves, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people Uh, at this time in uh, Jerusalem. This is just a sort of a uh, artist depiction of the temple Uh, during Passover. According to the historian Josephus, Jerusalem would swell from about 50,000 people to upwards of, as Josephus says, upwards of three million people people would come from all over the world to the temple to jerusalem to celebrate passover now later historians have reduced that number to what they think around 250,000. but in either way there's a lot there are a lot of people descending upon jerusalem at that time jesus was at the height of his uh, popularity and we don't read this in the book of mark but we learn from the other gospels that jesus had had recently raised a man named lazarus from the dead and people were talking about this. And this was a huge sensation. Um, and so Jesus had a massive following. And as people came from all over, they were talking about Jesus. We know that just a few days earlier, he was in the temple. He wrecked the temple. He started, you know, exercising his authority in the temple, throwing over the money changers, throwing over a, um, and throwing people out of the money, taking a, a whip to the backs of the money changers. And so he was he was this powerful charismatic amazingly strong guy that was just present uh, during the time of the passover and there was a lot of tension if you take out jesus at this time remember during the passover the passover is the celebration of the jews liberty from uh from egypt their freedom from egypt and of course the context now is that they're being oppressed by the roman government And here's this guy, this Jesus, who they're looking at as a possible savior from Roman oppression. So there's a lot of tension around him. There's a storm brewing. Jesus is at the center of this storm. And there are a lot of people that that want him to take the lead and liberate them from Roman oppression. So the Sanhedrin, the the chief priests, the, the rulers knew that if they took out Jesus right now, if they did it publicly, there would be a riot. There would be an absolute riot. So they sought to take him out by stealth um, so that there wouldn't be a riot. Um, next verse. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, Bethany is not far from Jerusalem. And Jesus spent some of the time his last week on earth, um, his last week before the crucifixion he spent in this town of Bethany where he had friends. Uh, in the house of Simon the leper we don't know much about Simon the leper the presumption is that he was a former leper that Jesus had healed at some point and that and and he was now hosting Jesus for a, for a dinner um, and he was at the house of Simon the leper and he was reclining at the table and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard very costly and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Okay, what's this about? Click to the next one there, Ryan. Um, So this over here is an image of spike nerd, which is a which is a uh, a plant that at that time would have would have grown in the northern region of um, India. Most but most prominently, it, it, it grew in Nepal. And what they would do is they would pull this plant and these little stems from the bottom. They would crush these stems, and it would become. They would create this very aromatic ointment. That was extremely expensive, um, and it would be used for perfume. It would be used for burial rites. It would be used for a number of of different things. It was a sedative. Uh, it was a whole host of things. But what they would do is they would crush it, and they would put it in a box like this, alabaster, or a, or a flask like this. Alabaster is, is made of gypsum. It was a very beautiful, you know, if it's pure, it's it's perfectly white. This is actually one from, I think it's around um, 700 B.C., but... but um, You know, they weren't always pure white, but this is this is an example of what it would have looked like and there There was always a a thin neck on the top and to to get the alabaster to get the ointment out You'd have to break the top break the seal off the top Um, So she brings this to Jesus now this came from Nepal remember this this came 3,000 miles. This wasn't like you go to Macy's you pick up a $25 bottle of perfume this as we will learn was worth one year's wages not one year of of a, of a worker, one year's entire wages. Not one year saving, one year entire wages. So she brought this to Jesus. She broke it. She poured it on his head. Who's the woman? Next slide, Ryan. This this is just an artist depiction. We learned from some of the other gospels that the woman was Mary, Mary the sister of Lazarus. Lazarus was the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. So Mary comes to Jesus with this hugely valuable, hugely precious gift. She breaks it open. It's worth roughly $30,000 today. And she pours the entire thing out on his head and on his body. And in fact, one of the other gospels says that she uh, poured it also on his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair, which was not. A customary thing to do Um, know that this was an extravagant an extraordinary event this was not customary for a person to come in and pour out an entire bottle of thirty thousand dollars worth of ointment on on someone and then to wipe in in fact at that time the the women didn't even let their hair down and for her to take her hair down in public and wipe um, his feet with her hair was was an extraordinary event it was a very it was a huge gesture and it would have, been, it would have, it would have uh, gotten everyone's attention as it did. Um, next verse says that as... Uh, so there were some who said to themselves when she did this, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. One denarii was one day's worth of labor for a common laborer at that time. So you take out the weekends and the Sabbaths and so forth. You get 300 denarii is is a year's worth of wages. That's how we know how expensive the stuff was. Uh, For more than 300 denarii. And this could have been given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now, we know from some of the other Gospels that the person who says this, the one who said, hey, why is this being wasted? This could have been given to the poor. We learn that the person that said that is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. He was one of Jesus' twelve. And we'll talk about him in a minute. But we know that his motives weren't exactly clean. Um, Next verse, verse six. But Jesus said to Judas and to the others there, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body Beforehand for burial And truly I say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world What she has done will be told in memory of her Next slide Then judas iscariot Who was one of the 12? He was the one that said why are you pouring this out? Judas iscariot who was one of the 12 Went to the chief priests In order to betray jesus to them And when they heard it, when the chief priests heard it, they were glad. And promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity. To betray him. Two people, one trying to see how much he can get. From Jesus, from selling Jesus, from betraying Jesus, one person who is trying to figure out how much she can pour out on Jesus. One running the numbers, one pouring out on Jesus. There was a film that wasn't that great in 1993 called Indecent Proposal. Uh, I can't recommend it to you, but the plot is actually a little bit interesting in that the idea was this young couple, Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore, uh, went to Las Vegas. His house was in foreclosure. Um, They were out of money. They were a young married couple in love. They went to Las Vegas to try to make some money. I think his father-in-law or her father, his father-in-law had given them five thousand dollars. They go up to the roulette table. They put it all on red. They spin. Guess what? Lands on black. Uh, They're out of money. They're approached by a billionaire played by Robert Redford, and Robert Redford offers Woody Harrelson one million dollars if he can have one night with Woody's wife. The premise is fascinating because the question is, what is that worth? What is your soul worth? What is your love worth? What is your relationship with another person worth? In the movie, Woody Harrelson runs the numbers and he makes a tragic decision. Because he's running the numbers on the value of his relationship with his wife. Judas was one of the twelve he was an, he was a, he, he was one of the closest followers of Jesus the 12 are the ones that traveled around with Jesus there were many many followers of Jesus there were many many thousands of disciples of Jesus but there were 12 that were deeply involved and what we also know about Judas is that he was a trusted trusted member of the 12 he was in charge of holding the common purse Judas was the one he was the treasurer of the group Jesus and his men had a common purse, people would donate to it, and that's, what, th- that's how they would live. And Judas was in charge of holding that purse. And Judas, as we learn later in, in one of the other Gospels, Judas had been skimming off the top of the, donate, of the donations that had come in to Jesus' ministry, for we don't know how long. But ever since Judas was a part of this inner circle, he had been trying to siphon off what he could get from Jesus. He was running a racket. He was a thief. And so when he says, this was a waste of money, this should have been this should have been sold and given to the poor, what he meant is, this should have been sold, put in the common bag, I'll take my 10 percent, and the rest well, maybe I'll take 20 percent, you know, he was in charge of the money bag. Um, we learn, and we're going to get into this in a couple weeks, but we learn that Judas did go to the Sanhedrin. He did go to the chief priest that night. And he told them, I can tell you where Jesus is going to be. And he let them know that Jesus was going to be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly after that. And he led them there by stealth with clubs and torches at night. And he said, here's the signal that I will give to you so you know which one to arrest in the dark. I will walk up to Jesus and I will kiss him. And then you will arrest him. And, you know, he, he in fact did that. He did that very thing at night by stealth with torches and clubs. He brought the enemies of Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane and he went up and he kissed Jesus and they moved in and they arrested him. And they, as you know, they crucified him. And after the crucifixion, this is the really this is really the tragic part of it. Um, bef- after the crucifixion and before the resurrection. Judas was so overcome with remorse that he took the money that he had gotten. And by the way, he got 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver, which was the amount that uh, a, fir- a first century master would pay for a slave. 30 pieces of silver. That's what he got for Jesus. Uh, after the crucifixion, he was so filled with remorse, he ran back to the temple. He, the scripture says he threw the money down in the temple and called it blood money. And he ran out and found a tree and hung himself from a tree because he was so overcome with guilt and so overcome with remorse. This, this greed, this running of the numbers, this desire, this constant calculation, what can I get, what can I get, leads to this sort of insatiable poverty, this insatiable desire for more. Two characters, one Mary, one Judas, demonstrating two very important points, and they are this. One is the poverty of greed. One is the wealth of gratitude. Gratitude poverty of greed and the wealth of gratitude this is a, a, an artist's depiction of judas standing at the garden of gethsemane as jesus is being arrested over there in the corner it's kind of hard to see but um what does this mean the poverty of greed what does it mean it means that now no matter how much a person has it's never enough no matter how much they have it's never enough A million is not enough. A billion is not enough. Ten billion is not enough. And it doesn't have to do just with money. We can all be greedy for different things. We don't have enough prestige. We don't have enough respect. We don't have enough love, sex, attention, whatever it is. We can find ourselves allowing greed into our hearts in this constant state of desiring more. And when you are in a constant perpetual state of desiring more, you're in a constant state of need, which means you're impoverished. Greed is is greed will put you into poverty. Um, Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think it's good that people desire to have good things and quality things for themselves and for their families. And we should have that. And it's healthy. But when it becomes the governing factor in your life, when it takes over control of your thoughts and your mind and your actions, it leads to a state of spiritual and emotional poverty. Um, Judas was such a person. He was controlled by that insatiable desire to amass more, to sacrifice relationships to get more, to sacrifice friendships to get more, to sacrifice his relationship with his Lord to get more. I met a guy quite a while ago who owned a company worth tens of millions of dollars, Um, very wealthy guy. Um, He had plenty to make a comfortable living for himself uh, and his family. But this guy, and I'm telling you, you have to trust me on this, had an insatiable lust, an insatiable desire to accumulate more at the expense of whatever at the expense of whatever. Friendships ground up. Marriage ground up. Relationship with kids ground up. It didn't matter. Everything everything was driven by his desire to have more. And I had the unfortunate experience of being in a business meeting with him and if I ever if I ever questioned the existence of true evil this 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 this, this business meeting fixed that for me. The, this guy absolutely radiated avarice. He radiated greed. He just, this, the, it, was, it was just this deplorable sense about him that really made you want to run from the room. And I don't know where this guy will end up or what will happen, but I would be willing to put more money on than I did on the three-card money that he, will, that he will end up a very cold and lonely person. Um, Luke's Gospel tells us that at the Last Supper, it uses this phrase about Judas. It says that Satan had entered into Judas. I think what it's, what it's getting at is that Judas had harbored this greed for so long. He had skimmed off the top for so long. He had been trying to get more for so long. He had been trying to, at the, at the sake of his own soul, get further and further and further down the road that at some point... Evil took him over, and he had no, no more control of his life. Um, there's going to be a sunnier part of this sermon in just a minute, so don't you worry. We'll get out of the greed and into the gratitude. Um, but I want to just quickly go through some examples of the poverty of greed. And this is stuff that we might experience ourselves, and we want to guard against. Um, number one, in gratitude, there was an eccentric 18th-century businessman and writer named Timothy Dexter, and he says an ungrateful man is like a hog under a tree eating acorns but never looking up to see where they come from. Have you ever known anyone that's just ungrateful? Um, You can spot them a mile away. When I was in law school, um, (laughs) there were several around me. And I remember thinking, because I was a little older when I went to law school, and, and there was a lot of complaining and whining and moaning. And I remember looking around going, Man, you guys had no idea how fortunate you are to be in this place, in this situation, in this state in life. No idea. Um, ingratitude is a is, is sort of greed. It means that we, we think we should have more, and so we're ungrateful for what we have, which is similar to this entitlement, um, a sense of entitlement. If you ever meet someone who has the, uh, a sense of entitlement, they, they expect that good things will be handed to them, and they are indignant when good things are not handed to them, um, they're running the numbers, and and I've been guilty of, of of running the numbers, and I think we all are. But I I made a donation one time to uh, St. Louis Public Radio, and um, I remember thinking as I was calling them, what do I get if I donate to St. Louis Public Radio? What do I get? Do I get a T-shirt? Do I get some CDs? Do I get tickets to a concert? I mean, I was really it, it wasn't it wasn't out of like. Man, I've been listening to these guys. They're publicly supported. I'm going to support them. No, it was like, I mean, that was part of it. But in the back of my mind, I'm going, I mean, do I get my name in the paper? Do I get to be like a cool person that gets the VIP thing? at the Who knows? Anyway, I did get a little um, This American Life um, story CD thing, which was cool. Um, but the idea is that when we give, we shouldn't be giving with this sense of, well, what am I going to get out of it? Um, Discontentment is another form of greed It's a perpetual state of happiness at one station or status in life Discontentment is I should be making more money. I should be further along in life I should be in a better relationship people should respect me more people should love me more people should may pay more attention to me Paul says in Philippians 4 I love this scripture. I have learned 4 11 13. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love that scripture. It encapsulates this attitude that Christ wants from us, and that is this this. Orientation of our hearts that is deeply grateful to him that's deeply deeply grateful for the gifts that he has given us So that when we do suffer need or we do suffer circumstances that hurt us We're not we're not impoverished by it. We're not spiritually impoverished by it. We still have enough And when we experience abundance and when we experience uh, blessings in our life We're not overwrought with a desire an insatiable desire for more we're content either way. And finally, impatience is another form of greed. Um, let me tell you guys this. If, if, if you get out, if you get dressed before your wife, and you decide to go out to the car, to get in the car to get ready to go somewhere, let me tell you a bad idea. It's a bad idea to start honking the horn to hurry your wife out the door. It's a bad idea. That is a freebie I'm just giving to you guys today. Um. Impatience implies that our desires and our needs are more important than someone else's desires and someone else's needs. And this, this becomes clearer to us when we find out that, for example, I'm in the car honking the horn. Where's Rebecca? Rebecca comes out and says... Hey, you forgot to turn the stove off. I was in there turning the stove off. I feel a little bit dumb at that point, right? So when we're impatient, we think that our needs and our desires are more important than someone else's needs and their desires. That's a form of greed, and we need to be cautious of it. 2 Peter 1.6 says, exercise steadfast patience. So God is calling us away from this life of poverty. And when I, mean, when I say poverty, I mean the poverty of greed, the poverty of always desiring more. And he's calling us to the wealth of gratitude, the wealth of gratitude. What does this mean? It means no matter how little you have, it is more than enough. The wealth of gratitude means no matter how much or how little you have, it is more than enough. A person who is governed by gratitude leads a life of perpetual abundance. And I don't mean material wealth. I'm talking about spiritual abundance, okay? Because no matter how much or how little they have, they remain overflowing with the joy and the contentment that that accompanies a life of gratitude. Up until the uh, mid-1990s, the... um, the field of psychology focused on uh, mental illness, mental problems. Um, And it really sought to explore different types of mental illness. Around the mid-1990s and the early 2000s, a new branch of psychology began to develop where they started to focus on the positive mental attributes. In other words, not what makes a person mentally unhealthy, what makes a person mentally healthy. And they called this field positive psychology. Um, and there's been a massive amount of research into what are the things that, that make a person mentally and emotionally and psychologically stable, healthy, and whole. What are those things? And what they have found is that there is a massive body of recent scientific, uh, social scientific research on this that strongly, strongly suggests that there is a direct correlation between gratitude and a, and a, st- a, a state of mental health. Studies have have shown, recent studies have shown um, that people who are more grateful have higher levels of subjective well-being. That means they're happier, they're less depressed, they're less stressed, they're more satisfied with their lives, they're more satisfied with relationships. Grateful people have higher levels of control over their environments. They have a greater sense of personal growth. They have a greater sense of purpose. They have a greater self-acceptance. Uh, They have more positive ways of coping with difficulties. Um, They're more likely to seek support from other people. They're more likely to reinterpret and grow from their experiences. Um, They're more likely to spend time planning on how to deal with problems. Grateful people have less negative coping strategies. They're less likely to avoid the problems in their lives. They're less likely to deny the problems in their lives. They're less likely to cope with uh, problems through substance abuse. And if that isn't enough, Grateful people grateful people tend to sleep better than other people. Um, my son, Jameson, li- likes to pray, you know, and I may have told you this, but he likes to pray when we go to bed, and I don't know if he's genuinely a grateful guy or if he's just trying to prolong the time before he has to actually go to sleep because he'll say, dear God, thank you for mommy and daddy and Grandma and Grandpa and Mimi and Shashi and Christy and Drew and Whitney and Shaden and goes down that whole line. And then he'll go, and thank you for my friends at church and thank you for my friends at school. And he'll start naming them. And then he'll say, thank you for the, our house and our car and thank you for... And then he starts to see his eyes wander. <laughs> the light switch. <laughs> and thank you for the curtains. And thank you for the carpet and thank you for Lincoln's pajamas and it goes on and on and let me tell you something this kid sleeps really well okay (laughs) a life of gratitude is a is implicitly a life of abundance it doesn't mean that a money tree is going to grow up in your backyard and a million dollars is going to fall into your wallet. What it means is that your life will be full and abundant because you're living a life of gratitude. Um, when Mary broke open that $30,000 bottle of ointment and poured it over Jesus's head and anointed his feet and wiped, wiped it with her, with her hair, she had tapped into a spiritual, emotional, psychological truth that an extravagant display of gratitude leads to an extravagant experience of joy, an extravagant experience of well-being. Um, when we break ourselves open, when we pour ourselves out, our lives, our time, our treasure, our talent, for out of gratitude to others and to God, we experience an abundance, a spiritual abundance in our hearts. I want to go through just very quickly a few um, what it means to have a life of gratitude. And I'll just talk through these just very briefly. But first of all, awareness, an awareness of what we are grateful for. When we begin to exercise an awareness of what we are grateful for, then it can al- it allows us to start practicing a life of gratitude. The air you breathe, the beating of your heart, your family, your life, your friends, your children, your job, your spouse, your church, your neighbors. When you begin to just take into account the things that you didn't make. And start to think and start to become aware of them and start to become aware of your gratitude for them. That will lead you to number two, which is expression. Be extravagant in your expression of gratitude. Buy buy someone a gift. Take them to lunch. Give the, send them a card. Call them. Tell them. Send them an email. Just let them know. Express your gratitude. This is a this is a spiritual truth. It, it sometimes in some churches is sometimes um, misinterpreted, misused. And I don't want you to get the wrong impression here, okay? Because there is a law of the harvest, and that is when you pour out, you receive. And Jesus says, you know, when, if, you, if you give, it will be given unto you, shake down, pressing together, and flowing over. That, can, that concept can be abused, and I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Like I said, you don't give to God. You don't, this isn't a barter. You don't give to God, and a money tree grows up in your backyard. But what you do is you give of your life, you give of your time, your talent, your money, your abilities, to the work of God and to other people. And there's an abundance and a fullness and a, and a breaking open of your life um, that you'll experience. You don't have to be a Christian to experience this. Watch this. This, this is a spiritual fact that applies in life. Um, in 2010, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates introduced a campaign called the Giving Pledge. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. The Giving Pledge, where these three guys went out and they started talking to the wealthiest families in the United States. And they have convinced over 70 families, billionaire families in the United States, to give away to some charity at least 50% of their wealth. If you go on GivingPledge.org, you can see their names. (laughs) These are people that have publicly pledged billionaires who have publicly pledged to give away 50% of their wealth to charity in their life or in their lifetime, or I don't know if it's in their lifetime or after their lifetime, but 50% of their amassed wealth goes out the door to charity. I don't know if these guys are, who among them are Christians and who aren't, but they figured something out. And that is that there's a, uh, an openness, an abundance in one's life when they direct their focus towards helping other people. Is that all right? Um, you also orient your heart when you are effusive in your expression of gratitude. The scripture says wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Your heart is going to follow your treasure, Okay. So when we when we give out to other when we go out to kingdom house and we spend a couple hours out there shoveling rocks, I don't know about you, but I feel attached to those folks. I my heart is with them. My heart is with the people in that place because we went out there and did that. My heart just followed the gift. It just did. Um, Maya Angelou says, I have found that among its other benefits, giving liberates the soul of the giver. So express your gratitude, okay? Number three, observation. Observe what happens in your life as a result of this exercise. I mean seriously, take a notebook, sit back, and reflect. What is your, how is your life different if you begin to live this way? How is it different? I think you'll find if it's not different or worse, then by all means, Stop. Stop being generous stop being grateful if it's not working. Don't do it, but I I guarantee you that if you do it you are going to notice real tangible palpable changes in your life observe those and then number four is expand make it go go further with it take it further see where it see where it takes you Um, and we're going to wrap up here, but I want I want us all to do an exercise this week. Okay. In your mind right now, think of someone, one person for whom you are grateful. Get that person's image in your mind. Think of one person for whom you are grateful. Think of three attributes about that person for which you are grateful. You can write them down. Or you can just think about them. Okay? Think of one person. Think of three attributes or characteristics about that person that you're, for which you're grateful. And number three is resolve this week to communicate your gratitude to that person. I just want you to try it as an exercise. It's not going to hurt, hurt. It's not going to hurt. I can guarantee you that. But see what it does. See what it does in your life. See what it does if you think of a person, think of what you're grateful for, and then express your gratitude to that person this week. Try it. Watch what happens in your life. And let's close with this. If Jesus had run the numbers on your life and my life, if Jesus had run the numbers on our lives to figure out what he was willing to do for us, If he knew the number of times that we would stumble, if he knew the number of times, and he did, but if he was running the numbers to see how many times we're going to stumble, how many times we're going to fail, how many times we're going to say the wrong things, how many times we're going to think the wrong things, do the wrong things, how many times we're going to mess up? If he was running the numbers on our lives, he would say, you know what, I'm not putting my neck out for that guy. Sorry, Rome, I'm not putting my neck out for you. You're going to keep screwing up. And I'm not going to do it. It's not worth it. But like Mary, Jesus, like, like Mary who broke open this, this precious ointment and poured it out over Jesus, Jesus broke open his own flesh. Allowed his, his, the ointment of his blood to be poured out for us, to cover us, to cleanse us, to purify us. To make us whole, to redeem us, to change us, to alter our lives, radically alter our lives. This pouring out is what he gave to you and to me. And he calls us to do the same. To pour out our lives to him, to pour out our lives for others. Let's do that this week. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks, God, for this.